We are coming here and it's great to be at church. And this morning, I want to bring to you uh, a thought from Scripture and I've titled my message as this, Raising a Godly Generation in Challenging Times. Now, it's not a new fact or an unknown fact that we are indeed living in challenging times both in the nation, politically, across the world, economically, now as well as health-wise and all that. And even personally, some of us could be going through deep, deep challenges, whether it's in your family, in your finances, in your business, in your studies, whatever it is. But I'm reminded in Scripture, time and time again, we see that the people of God actually grow through adversity and not prosperity. In fact, it is in prosperity that the people of God, especially Israel, quite often forsake the things and the ways of God. So even as we go through this challenging time, in the natural, it would seem like we should be discouraged. In the natural, it would seem like we ought to be panicking and all these different things. Now, we should exercise wisdom, but we should also understand the times and recognize that it is in challenging times, it is actually an opportunity now to build some strong foundations. It is an opportunity now to teach the next generation, young people, what things truly matter. Last weekend, Pastor Chu shared from his sermon, he mentioned there are two things, at the end of the day, only two things remain, and that is the Word of God and the souls of men. What are we teaching? What are we going to be passing on? And this morning, I'm going to be speaking um, in general, but I hope to target in a specific as well. Now, I have in mind when I crafted this message, parents, right? Parents who have children, maybe they are teenagers or younger, but also parents-to-be. Maybe you are thinking of becoming a parent, you know, you're, you're married and you want to have children soon, or you could be an employer and you have young people under your, um, under your wing, or you could be a leader where you're leading young people, whether they are a work, working adult, young working adult, or younger. This hopefully will apply to most, if not all of us. Now, I'm going to go to Scripture, and the Scripture I've chosen for this morning is Judges chapter 2. It's going to be on the screen, but I want to encourage you to read it in your Bibles if you had it, and I'm going to read it from the NIV version. Judges chapter 2, verses 6 to 17 says this, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaesh. Now look at verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. In His anger against Israel, The Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of the enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as He had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet in verse 17, they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Now, the Bible 
uh, often likes to use imagery to describe what life is about or what the journey of faith is like. And Paul, in the New Testament, he often uses an imagery of a race, running the race. So I wanted to suggest to you that life is more like a marathon run than a 100-meter sprint. Now, I personally do not like and do not enjoy cardiovascular activity. The one thing that I dread, the one machine that I dread the most in the gym is the treadmill. I don't like cardiovascular activity. I also do not understand the concept of joining a marathon by paying money. It's like, why would you pay money to torture yourself? I will pay money to go to a spa. I'm not going to pay money to make, to now run 42 kilometers. No, thank you. I can drive. You know, I don't like, I don't enjoy marathons. I don't enjoy long cross country runs. But life is often like that and so is our journey of faith, right? It is not a one-time event or a lifelong pursuit. Christianity is not just about going to the right events and sometimes that's what we do, right? We go to the right, we go to one conference after another, we go to one camp after another, we go to one seminar after another. Now all those things are good and well, they help us grow in our faith but they're not the be all and and all. One day you can experience a victory and you can celebrate but other days you may experience defeat and that's when you have to evaluate. Hebrews 12 verse 1 itself says this, right? That we should run with endurance the race that God has set before us. For those of us who have been Christians for 5, 7, 10, 15 or more years, right, you have been running a race. And we all know this. It's not just about how well you start. It is about how well you can carry on, but also how well you can finish. But as you finish, there is a transition that takes place. Paul himself said this in Timothy. He said this, that I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith and I have finished the race. But as he was saying that, he was actually passing on something to Timothy. Now, are you familiar with the concept or the competition known as a relay race? Right? In a relay race, there are four runners and each of those runners play a significant part. Each of them, their individual ability and performance will contribute to how well the race is run. In 1996, in the Olympics, the US uh, team, the men's, the men's relay race, they were actually the favourites to win that race. All of them were high performers. All of them were really, really good individually. But what cost them that race and they lost to the Canadian team was because of the transitions. Now, in a relay race, what happens, four runners, each of them would run, but they have to pass a baton or a baton on. And the thing is, as they pass it on, there is a certain technique that you must pass this baton on to, you must hold on to it, and there is not only a technique to give it, there is also a technique to receive it and the transition must take place. One runner passing to another has to slow down to pass it on and the other has to start picking up the pace before receiving it. And that is also the journey of faith. All of us, whether you are a new Christian or you are a mature Christian for a while now, one day we will need to pass on what we believe what we have been building. Now you see in this scripture that I picked up, the character that is mentioned is one that is not unfamiliar to us, those who have been in church for a while, this character known as Joshua. Now Joshua, he experienced great things. He's seen great things. Joshua, I believe, was there when Moses parted the Red Sea. Can you imagine witnessing such a powerful event, seeing the Red Sea being parted? Not only that, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, Joshua led the people of Israel into their first battle and first victory over the Amalekites. It's shown in Exodus 17. 
And then Joshua was one of the 12 spies sent into the land of Canaan. And we know this, right? Joshua and Caleb, they were the ones that came back with a good report and the people of Israel progressed. Joshua is also the one who saw the battle of Jericho. Now we know this story is a great Bible story, one that we tell Sunday school and kids' church, right? Joshua, they marched around the walls seven times or seven days and then at the end of it, they let out a loud shout and the walls came tumbling down. Joshua overcame you know, the odds. The odds were against him, but God was for him. Joshua went into the land of Canaan and he faced five Amorite kings with their army, but yet he came out victorious. Joshua was the one in Joshua chapter 10 who actually asked the Lord to do a miracle that the Bible says never happened before and will never happen again. And that is he asked the Lord to make the sun stand still. This is the Joshua that we are talking about. But yet, the Bible tells us a generation who followed, who grew up with Joshua, who came under him, did not know the Lord, nor the things that he had done for them. The first reality I want to paint to us, ladies and gentlemen, is this. Spiritual growth does not happen via osmosis. Some of you probably not heard that phrase since high school, right? During high school biology, osmosis. Now, I, osmosis is not just a biological term, but it's also, it also carries this other meaning, and that is this. The process of gradual or unconscious assimilation of ideas or knowledge. What do I mean by this? You see, as leaders, as parents, as people of God, we could be busy building the kingdom of God. We could be busy running a business. We could be busy serving church. We could be busy doing all these different things. And we think that just because our children are in church, that they are automatically going to become spiritual and godly. So this is what we do. We outsource the responsibility of spiritual growth for our children or the people that we are leading or whatever to pastors and leaders. That's what we, we outsource. But what can really happen if we are not careful is that we could be doing all these great, amazing, wonderful things. And I know in here, many of us have many stories of victory. Many of us have seen God come true for us in our business. Many, have seen, many of us have seen God, you know, turn our ministries around or done great exploits in us and through us. But that does not necessarily mean that the people following after us will go together in our footsteps. You know, when I was, uh, when, when, when I, God called me to ministry a long time ago, and I've been in ministry for about a decade now, if not a bit more. And when I was a young man, you know, setting out in ministry, uh, I had a lot of, I have lots of ambitions, I had a lot of dreams, I had a lot of goals. But as I grow older, I feel like my, the things that I value in life starts to change. It's kind of like this, you know, when I was younger, I wish I had a lot of money. Now when I'm older, I just hope I don't become broke. Any of you identify with me? And I don't need to be rich as long as I got enough money to pay the bills, that's good enough for me. And you know, as a leader, uh, as a pastor, I used to think, you know, I want to do all these great things for God. I want to, you know, have this conference. I want to write this book. I want to appear uh, on this television. All these, all these different things. I have all great aspirations. But now, I have one really, really big aspiration in my life, and that is this. I want my kids not to have PK syndrome. Y'all know what PK syndrome is? Pastor's kids syndrome. <laughs> that's, one, that's, that's my number one goal. And a couple of years ago, um, somebody, I can't remember who, whether I, somebody said this to me or I read this somewhere, and this, the statement goes like this. Every business will have a CEO. Every company will have a CEO. Every business will always have an owner. Every church will have a pastor. Every ministry will have a leader. But your children will only ever have one father. Your children will only have one mom 
will only have one dad. And that really stuck to me. So that made, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I still believe in the kingdom of God. I still believe in the house of God. That's why, you know, I'm a full-time pastor. I still believe in building the house of God. I'm not saying it's not important. But what I'm also wanting to bring to our attention is that we have to be very intentional of what we are building, especially at home, especially in our children. You see, where did it go wrong for Israel? What happened to the people of Israel? In a scripture that we read in verse 6, it actually said that Joshua led the people of Israel and they settled in the promised land. And remember, I said that oftentimes it is through adversity that the people of God grow and not prosperity. So what had happened to the people of Israel is they were no longer nomads. They were no longer refugees. They were no longer wandering from watering hole to watering hole in the hot Sinai desert. They were no longer eating a boring diet of manna and quail. But now they were in the land of milk and honey. They have done well from there for themselves. But what happened when they, what happened to them? Think about this. They spent such a long time going through all kinds of trials and troubles, seeing the Red Sea being parted, going through all these battles and all that. Now they are finally where they've always wanted to be and they immediately get comfortable. And the first thing that they do when they get comfortable is they forget the Lord. You know, a couple of months ago, starting I think sometime in December, last year, 2019, December, a few months ago, uh, we had this outbreak of influenza across, right? And now it's developed into something even more serious. I myself uh, was not spared from it. I remember I took about two weeks off after Christmas, but I spent those two weeks nursing myself back to health at home. We had this influenza physical virus. But there is also, I believe, a spiritual cancer going about the world called effluenza. Now, I thought this was a word, wow, I'm so clever, I came up with this word. So I actually popped it into, you know, Google, and it's an actual word, and this is the definition it came up. It says this, effluenza is a psychological malice supposedly affecting wealthy young people, symptoms of which include a lack of motivation, feelings of guilt, and a sense of isolation. And this gives a lot of insight to, you, to me. I don't know whether you are resonating with this because we often ask ourselves, why are young people depressed? Why are they so anxious? Why is mental health on the rise amongst the next generation? They have it so good. Maybe it's because they're having it a little bit too good. Effluenza. You see, in this day and age, what we have inadvertently done is we have now pushed people to chase goodness instead of godliness, to value comfort rather than character, and to want pleasure but not seek purpose. We have created inadvertently people who are idol chasers and not God worshippers. And you ask me, how have we done that? Why have you, that's a big accusation. My friends, it's in the little things that we do. It's in the fact that we push some of our children to be academically excellent, overachievers. They come back with 95%, you ask them, where's the other 5%? You know, we push them, we give them pressure. You say, you must do this, you must do that, you must go. Now, I'm not saying that's not important, but what I'm saying is that we push them to achieve all of these things and then we push God out of their lives without realizing it. In a times of exam, I'm a youth pastor, so you know, I've been in youth ministry for a while now, uh, and I've heard this many, many times. You know, you've stopped coming to church during exam time. Why? Because parents will say to them, oh, don't need to go to church during your exam time. You better study. You can go to church for the rest of your life, but now you just study. When you do that, 
you are not just giving them an instruction, you are imparting a value. That is okay for me to push God aside for a while and do my own thing. And then we glorify different things, right? We glorify the success, the wealth of the world, but yet we don't instill in people the value or the importance of what it means to actually follow God. Let me put it this way. We make good things become the ultimate things. Academic success is important and it is helpful. But let me tell you, it is not the most important thing. A couple of days ago, they released the SPM results and everyone was freaking out. Some people were bragging and all that kind of stuff. I thought to myself, what did I get for SPM? I don't even remember. <laughs> so long ago, doesn't even matter anymore. Now, I'm not, saying don't, I'm not saying don't study and don't do all this, but we have to really, really make sure that what kind of values we are instilling into our people. We, you know, we, we, we cannot seek permanent satisfaction in temporary things. We have to now build a generation that is godly. And you go, I, you know, what, what is an idol? How are we... How are we raising idol chasers? Now, let me put this definition on the screen. An idol is not just a statue that you have in your house. An idol is anything that you must seek permission from before you say yes to God. In Judges, it says that the people of Israel, they forsook the Lord and they worship Baals and the world and the gods of the worlds around them. And you may think that worship, some of us think worship is just the songs that we sing or the religious allegiance we ally ourselves with. But no, worship is also the decisions that we make, the choices that we take actually reflects who you truly worship. Let me tell you, for example, amongst young people, right, when you are in a relationship and you know that purity is an important thing and is a part and parcel of our faith, but when you are faced with temptation, should you sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend and you are not married, you have a choice to make. Will you worship God in that moment? Or will you say no to God and yes to the flesh and the world and go for it? When you are at work and you have already decided that there are certain lines you will not cross, certain boundaries you will not cross, whether it is not taking money for a deal or not cutting people off, not betraying people, or even it's as simple as I'm dedicating the weekend to my family and to church and to God. But then when the pressure comes and it presses on you and you say, it's okay, I'll just go to work this weekend or I'll forget about God, forget about church in whatever situation I am, I'm going to cave in this one time. You have made a decision of worship at that point of time. Because I don't know about you, the world is actually a really loud place and it's constantly shouting and challenging you to choose the world other than choosing God. And it's very important that we as people of God, we need to know God well. We need to know Him true and true. Not just know about Him, but know Him. And that's the thing that I tell, you know, the next generation a lot, that you need to know God personally. And an illustration I often give to them is kind of like when you are on Instagram. Um, for those of you who are familiar with Instagram, what it does, it gives you access or connectivity to all kinds of people around the world, including famous people. And what we do is we know a lot about them by studying their social media accounts or reading their online biography. You know, we know the achievements, we know what they like, we know what kind of scandal they're involved in, we know how many kids. We build all this information about them. But let me tell you, at the end of the day, that is just information. I have a friend who is a big football fan, soccer fan. He knows everything about every team. He knows all the details, all the facts and all that. At the end of the day, he can, I can ask him anything. He can tell me anything about this player, that manager, that club. But what it is, is all just information. 
And the problem is that sometimes in church, that's all we have, information, information. But information only tickles the mind. It is revelation that will transform the heart, that will transform lives. So it's very important for some of us who have gone ahead in the faith that we have to check ourselves. We have to really ask ourselves, do I know God? Do I truly know Him? Not just know about Him. And do you know when you will know, really know God? In times of testing. In times of political turmoil. If your first response was like, we better migrate now to the Malaysian promised land known as Australia, then I ask you, do you know God? In times of trouble, when you are being tested, do you call upon the name of the Lord or do you now curse or do you crumble? Whatever it is, what is your first response? Your first response will always show your true allegiance and whether you know God. It's incredibly important as people that we know God and not just know about Him. Hebrews 12 verse 25 says this, be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. In the Old Testament, they relied on Moses and priests to speak or to hear from God. Now in the New Testament, we are the chosen nation. We are the royal priesthood. We have access to God and I thank God for that. But as the great Spider-Man once was told, with great power comes great responsibility. That when we can hear from God, we therefore now also have a responsibility that what we hear, we pass it on. What we hear, we transmit it. What we hear, we transfer it successfully to the next generation. Challenging times requires courageous parenting and courageous leading. And I want to encourage all of us, challenges even, that we would now be the kind of godly leadership or godly parents or leaders or whatever it is that this generation needs. You may not think yourself of as a great leader, but let me tell you, if you have children in your home, you are a leader. They are looking to you. You may not think that you have a, a leader of organizations, but let me tell you, you have influence. Anywhere you are, if there is a younger person that you know, whether it's a younger sister, younger brother, younger person in church, you have an opportunity to influence them and raise them for the Lord. So I've only got three simple points on how we can raise the next generation. I'm going to quickly go through them. I've chosen, I, I prayed really, really hard. I know in SIBKL, we want to make our points all the same alphabet, right? Sometimes we give, get a lot of pressure doing that. So unfortunately, this morning, I have failed. I apologize to you. But the closest I've done is I came up with an acronym, RTM. And I thought to myself, do you all remember RTM? Like TV1, TV2. Is it even still around? Anybody actually still watch it? RTM, right? So this is my points. How to raise a next generation RTM. The first point is this, relate to them. Relate to them. This is one I'm going to speak more to parents. Um, let me tell you something. In this day and age, as a parent, it's not just enough to provide for them. You need to relate to your children. You can outsource childcare. You can outsource your house chores. You can even outsource meals. Now they have catering services that will send food to your house if you don't have time to prepare. The one thing you cannot outsource is parenting your children and relating to them, building a relationship with them. And it takes a lot of intentionality. Now, I have a, I have, I have a, a daughter who, would, incidentally, today, she's now one and a half years old. And let me tell you something, uh, being a one and a half year old, she's not a great conversational partner. <laughs> In fact, our interest varies a lot. Um, I'm not into an Australian, uh, Australian, four Australian people singing known as the Wiggles. I'm not that interested in them. 
I'm not interested in ocean animals and all this kind of stuff, but these are things that interest her. And I, as a parent, I have to be intentional to take that time now, even at this young age, to relate to her. And mealtimes, you know, I, though I'm guilty, my wife would tell me that I'm guilty of this, and mealtimes, I try my absolute best to put my phone away. Even when I'm at home, I try to put, do my absolute best. I'm not replying emails, I'm not looking at messengers because I want to be present for my family. Many of us, we are present there physically, but we are absent in our, mentally with our kids, with our families. And let me, let me tell you this, right? In, the old, in my, my father's age, so we talk about generations, so that my father was probably known as a boomer, right? Or, or a, a boomer. Um, it was, it, you know, for him and for his father and his father's father, it would have been as simple as, I'm your father, I tell you what to do, you listen. But in this day and age, it's different. Just because you are blood-related to someone does not mean you have relationship with them. Does not mean that you have the right to speak into their lives. And you go, how dare you say that to me? Let me tell you, it is a reality. You have to earn the right to speak into someone's life. And the only way to earn that kind of right is to have relationship with them. There's this saying, right? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That cannot be more true than for our generation this day. Because our generation this day, they are not lacking connectivity. We are super connected. We've got all kinds of social media platforms. We've got access to all kinds of knowledge. When I was younger, if I did not know something, I would go, I need to ask my mom or dad. Nowadays, they will Google it. But let me tell you something. Just because a generation has a lot of knowledge, it does not mean they will have wisdom. Because the same platform that they can use to Google how to make a seven-course dinner is the very same platform they can Google on how to kill themselves. And there will be different suggestions of what kind of pain tolerance you have. The same kind of platform that you think is harmless, you know, is just Instagram. They're just looking at people posting pictures. It's the same platform that are shaping the next generation's values on identity, sexuality, morality, and all kinds of things. If you don't shape your child's values, guess what? The world is going to shape it for you. The device you give them is not just something to shut them up, it is actually imparting values and belief systems into your children. Can I ask us, now I'm not trying, I don't want to be harsh and I don't want to be mean and I understand the tensions of parenting and the turmoil it brings sometimes. But can I say, my goodness, friends and family, let's take parenting seriously. That's the one thing you cannot outsource. You cannot outsource even teaching your kids spiritually to the pastors and leaders simply because the reality is, you know, if you send your son or your daughter to church, they will be in church maybe once, at most twice or three times a week if they are involved a bit more. But the reality, the other times they are with you at home. And we as parents, I'm speaking to myself, I'm not speaking at you, I'm speaking with you. We as parents, we have a responsibility to relate, to know our kids so that we can shape their values. The Bible says in 1 Proverbs chapter eight, uh, verse 8, sorry, it says, My child, listen when your father corrects you. Don't neglect your mother's instruction. Now, I don't want to be insensitive to single parents um, right now, so I'm not singling you out, I'm not sidelining you, but I'm speaking in the generic. Fathers, especially fellow fathers, don't outsource parenting or delegate. Actually, it's not delegate, it's dump. Parenting to just your wives. 
Fathers, you play a role. Moms, you play a role. Maybe it worked in my father's time and my father's father's time and my father's 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 time where the men would just be busy getting the bacon, earning the money and let the women do all the raising. No, in this day and age, man, both parents need to be involved in shaping and raising the next generation. The second point is this, teach them. R-T, teach them the Word of God. You need to teach them the Word of God. Remember, spiritual growth does not happen via osmosis. And Spirituality, Christianity is not just built on concepts or ideas and, or opinions. It's built on the Word of God. We need to teach our children, not just send them to church and hopefully they read a few verses here and there. We need to teach them. I spoke this message at the second service before and a, a, a lady came up to me and said this, now I'm going to reward my grandchildren one pound for one verse. I'm like, good for you, right? But we really need to make sure that our children know and understand the Word of God. Because again, in this day and age, the validity or the truth of the Word of God is also being challenged. Will we as parents, are we equipped now to navigate? We as leaders, are we equipped to navigate the next generation through different challenges that will be thrown at the things of God? And I spoke about, I shared about how, you know, there are some Type of, there are some people where they don't relate to their children. They just kind of like provide for them. You have food to eat, that's it. But we also got the opposite of parents who they relate to their kids really well, but they don't teach them. They want to be the cool parents, the in parents. Whatever you want to do, let you do. Whatever you want to do, go for it. It's okay. They want to be their best friend. Let me tell you, you are not their best friend. You are their father. You are their mother. For God's sake, please be that. You don't have to be their best friend. They can find a best friend in school and in church. They need a father. They need a mother. You know, I was, I was looking up that, that, that word affluenza. And um, it brought me to this case um, that happened in Texas, US in 2013. I can't remember, forgive me, I can't remember the name of that person, but this person was basically a young man. What had happened was he had driven his SUV, his Jeep, his truck, whatever you call it, in his neighborhood, and he was drunk. And he actually drove his truck into a group of people, killing five of them and severely injuring nine of them. Now, when he went to court to face charges, his mom or his lawyers, whatever it is, the people representing him, appealed on the fact that he had affluenza. And because of that, he got a reduced sentence. The lawyers argued, this guy doesn't know right and wrong because his parents never taught him and the cause decided, okay, we can't blame him then. Crazy, crazy, right? And when we think about it, if we wonder, why do our kids, why do the next generation not know God? Why do they not have a passion for God? Why don't they love God? It's very easy to blame the church or to blame the world. But first we have to ask, have we ourselves been teaching them, imparting them, with the right things. When a person who is not our desired choice as Prime Minister gets appointed, do we say, die lah, finish lah, see lah, go all these prayer meetings for what? Or do we say, son, daughter, Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us this, for God has a plan to prosper and not to harm us, to give us a hope and a future. We may not see it now, but God has a hope and a future for us. When our children go through tough and challenging times, do we draw Romans 8 and tell them, it's okay, son, it's okay, daughter, because the Bible tells us God works for the good for those who love Him. We love Him, so we are going to be okay. How are we raising the next generation? You see, Moses was given this instruction in Deuteronomy 4 verses 9 to 10. 
But watch out, be careful never to forget what you yourself have seen. Do not let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live. And be sure to pass them on to your children. And for those of you who have already grown up children and you think, my job is done, and grandchildren. <laughs> never forget the day when you stood before the Lord your God at Mount Sinai, where he told me, summon the people before me and I'll personally instruct them. And now we'll go to Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 to 7. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Look at this. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home, when you are on the road, and when you are going to bed, and when you you are getting up. I am not there yet, but let me tell you, one of the things I want to do is I want to make it a thing in my household where talking about God and the Word of God is not a strange or forced thing. Will you be with me on this? Next gen, guys, young people, you are not married yet, you don't have kids yet, but will you be that kind of parent? Even in your relationships, will you make it not a weird thing to talk about God in your household, in your relationship, in your contexts. Proverbs 22 verse 6 itself encourages us as well. Direct your children onto the right path and when they are older, they will not leave it. My last point is this. So R-T-M. M is model to them the right example. Model to them the right example. Example. In this day and age, it's also incredibly important that we don't just talk the talk, we also have to walk the talk. This, gives, this brings to mind, um, you know the word hypocrite? Um, the word hypocrite is a very negative word, uh, negative connotations to it. But the thing is, a hypocrite basically just means an actor. That's how the Greek word came about, hypocrite, an actor. And when I think about an actor, I think about, uh, I, I don't know why I thought about this person, I thought of Hugh Jackman. You all know Hugh Jackman? Or Wolverine, right? X-Men with Wolverine. I cannot imagine uh, them casting anybody else as Wolverine because he, Hugh Jackman really owns this role. Now, Wolverine is a real brooding sort of character. Right? He's a tough, gritty fellow. Right? He's got mutant superpowers. He can regenerate quickly. He's got claws made of indestructible steel or metal. And that's Wolverine. But Hugh Jackman, on the other hand, when he's not Wolverine, he's, a, he's almost like he's a completely different person. He's this guy who's warm, who's bubbly, who likes to joke. He even likes to sing, uh, whether it's well or not, it's debatable, right? But he likes to do all these different things. He's just a different person altogether. Now think about the concept of an actor. Think about Hugh Jackman. What Hugh Jackman does is where he goes to the studio or the recording set, where, whatever it is, he takes on a role assigned to him. He knows what kind of characteristics he needs to take on. He knows what kind of posture he needs to portray. He knows all of these things because there's a script for him. But the minute he leaves the studio or the set, he ceases being Wolverine and he becomes Hugh Jackman. It would be a bit disturbing and weird if he went around waving his imaginary claws at people or thinking that he can be instantly regenerated anytime. But here's the thing. Sometimes what happens even with us, even for myself, we go to church, we know the right role to play because it's been assigned to us. We know the right seat to, right seat to sit in. We know the right time to stand up, to wave our hands. We know the right words to say. We know the right things to do. But what happens is that when we leave the church, just as an actor leaves the studio, do we bring back something different to our homes, to our workplaces? Are we two completely different people? Because then that is a hypocrite. You see, your spirituality or your Christianity is not defined by what you do in here. Even for me, 
I'm not defined by how spiritual I am or how well I can preach. Because let me tell you, you do this long enough, anybody can do it eloquently and sleekly and nobody would be fooled. Nobody would be none the wiser. Your spirituality, your Christianity is defined when, no, when you think nobody of importance or significance is watching. When you think the pastor is not there. When you think you are at home. When you are on the road driving. When you are with your families, when you are in your workplaces, that defines true spirituality. And we have to model the right example. When I speak to pastor's kids, those who actually, now, there are some, let me give a disclaimer. There are many pastor's kids who have grown up and they have, you know, they love the Lord and they still serve Him, right? I praise God for that. I'm not saying all pastor's kids are bad. But those who actually have an issue with church and spirituality, oftentimes their contention is this. They say this, I see mom and dad or dad or whoever in church, they act so spiritual, they do all these different things. But at home, they are like a completely different person. A few months ago, I caught up with a friend of mine who is a worship leader in another church. And he has a little boy. Uh, the little boy is about five or six now. And how many of you know children are extremely observant, but also extremely honest? They will just give it to you. They won't, they won't pull punches, right? So my friend told me this. He said that it was coming the weekend and he was, uh, going to, he was on duty. So as he was going to be on duty, he started preparing himself. He started praying and he started reading the Bible. And throughout the course of the week, he overheard his son saying to his wife, Daddy must be on duty this weekend. Because when he's on duty, then only he prays and he reads the Bible. Children are extremely observant. I might keep my daughter from coming to church when she learns how to speak. Because otherwise, you'll be going to her and using things to blackmail me. But my friends, it's important that we model the right example. It's important that we pass on the baton or the baton to the next generation. What kind of legacy are we going to pass on? Now, I'll close with this. I'll close with a story. Um, in the 1700s, they, they lived two people. One is a person that most of us would know. Uh, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard his name. His name is Jonathan Edwards. Now, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor. He was also a theologian. He was also one time a professor, I believe. Now, Jonathan Edwards had a big family. I think something like nine or 12 children. I don't know how they managed it. For me, one more probably, that's enough. I, mean, I, can't, I don't think I can take more than that. But, you know, he, he didn't just have a big family. He also pastored a church. So he would have been incredibly busy. But Jonathan Edwards made it a point Every day when he went home, he would spend at least an hour or two talking to his children, playing with them, and teaching them the Word of God. And there is this other person called Max Jukes. Now, Max Jukes lived about the same time as Jonathan Edwards in the district of New York, I believe. But this was a guy that rejected God. This was a guy that did not see the need for religion or the importance of spirituality. In fact, he totally did not bring his kids to church. Some reports say his kids even asked to go to church. I don't know how they verified that, but there was a comparison done with both of them by a sociologist. I'm going to show you on the screen. Jonathan Edwards had in total 929 descendants. Out of these descendants came 430 ministers or full-time workers, 414 people that served in the war, 75 authors, 86 people who taught and lectured, 13 university presidents, 7 congressmen and 3 governors and even 1 vice president. Max Jukes, on the other hand, he had more descendants than Jonathan Edwards. He was more fruitful. But he had... Out of his 1,026 descendants, he had 300 of them spent time in jail. 27 of them were convicted murderers. 190 of them were involved in prostitution. And 509 of them were addicted to alcohol or drugs or both. 
different legacies here before us. Two men with two equal opportunities, different legacies. And I'll leave you with this thought. Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be what you do, but who you raise. I'll say that again. Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be what you do, but who you raise. Parents, when you have children in your household, they are not just sent there by the Lord to terrorize you. (laughs) They've been sent by the Lord, made in the fullness of His image, and therefore they have tremendous potential in them. Little Kea here has an Instagram account, and her bio, I put this, Mommy and Daddy changed my diapers so that one day I can change the world. Because I believe every child, every young person, every person in fact, has the potential in them to change the world. Now the scale of the world may be different. Some of us may not be changing the world on a global scale, but some of us could be changing the world of politics. Some of us could be changing the world of fashion. Some of us could be changing the world of education. Some of us could be changing the worlds of those around us and making them for the better. All of us have the potential to do and to make a difference in this world. That's why God saved us. Not just to pave the way for us to go to heaven, but for us to bring transformation while we are still on earth. Amen. Amen. Let's rise to our feet. This morning, I apologize if I said something that offended you or they may have hurt you. But beyond that, I hope you've been challenged. I hope it greatly convicted you now to approach your families, approach the young people in your influence and in your midst with great intentionality. But I also recognize that parenting is not an easy journey. I also recognize leadership is not an easy thing. And I feel like this morning, if this message has, you know, if it spoke to you, I want to invite you now to respond with me by singing this song. And this song goes, God, I look to you. Give me vision. And we indeed need vision for our families. We need vision for our households. We need vision for ourselves even in this difficult time. So could we sing this song together in response? And let's, let's just worship Him. Let's say, yes, God, I look to you.